Hello and welcome everyone to another InventRight live Q&A. My name is Andrew Krauss. I'm the co-founder of InventRight. Get this silly microphone down here. Okay. And I'm going to spend a full hour. I'm going to spend a full hour. Sorry. Sorry. Getting a reverberation there. Getting a reverberation there. Getting a reverberation there. Okay, see if that fixes it. Okay, I think I had the LinkedIn page up and then it was streaming to that page live as well. That was kind of interesting. Um, okay, so if you guys could start typing uh, your questions in. Um, I like to say this at the beginning of every live Q&A that I've been doing on the Mondays, on Mondays now, the Mondays. It's an interesting uh, use of the English language. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I basically, I, I always explain that licensing, um, when you license to a company, you don't need to do all the things that you need to do when you're starting your own business. So you don't need money because when you license to a big company, you're going to utilize their money. So they're going to use their money and they have unlimited money for a product that sells well. They don't need to raise funds. They have letter of credit. They for a product that sells well, any company, any company of decent size that you're going to license to is going to have unlimited money for a product that sells well. So they're not going to run out of money like you would. If you try to venture your product and sell it, even if it's doing well, a banker's not going to give you money. So, you know, so you when you license, you get the money and then you get the workforce. You don't need to start a business. You don't need to hire employees. You don't need to work workman's comp or this employee is productive and this one isn't. So you're utilizing their workforce. So when they have 80 products, they have, you know, sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising, all these different um, people that make this company run and produce, let's say, 80 products they sell. So it's a machine. And then when you put your product, now they have 81 products and you license it to them. Now you're part of that machine. It's a very efficient machine. So you don't need to recreate a machine which is all those employees doing all that work for one product. It's not efficient use in most cases to have a one SKU, one product company. And retailers don't like one SKU, one product companies. Most of them would never even consider putting your product in their store if you started your own business and just had this one product. Um, and then the third thing is existing distribution. So if they're in 30,000 stores, boom, you're in 30,000 stores. They're going to try to do, they are going to do whatever they already do. So, if they're in Walmart, they're going to try to get your product in Walmart. If they're in Lowe's and Home Depot as well, they're going to try to get it in there. So they're going to put it wherever they currently distribute. And they have relationships with those retailers already, whether they're brick and mortar retailers or online retailers. They're going to simply do what they already do. If they're selling gardening products and they're in these retailers, they're going to sell your gardening product and be in those same retailers with your product in addition to their other products. So that's what licensing is. It's very powerful. I think it's a lot more powerful than like a TV show like Shark Tank. So you go on there and they're like, do they get the money? Don't get the money. It makes like good for good TV, but it's not as good of reality. And reality TV doesn't make for good reality really quite often because it's not very real. So when you license, you get the money, you get the workforce, and you get the distribution all in one place. When you go on a TV show like Shark Tank, what they're doing is some shark that's really well connected. Well, none of them are as, are as well connected as a big company. So let's say it's a major, um, let's say, tool company or gardening supply company. And they're in home view of all these places. None of these sharks have that kind of distribution. They don't have those kind of connections. They don't have relationships with all those buyers at all those stores. They just don't. You know, it's, so it's it's not nearly as attractive, but do they? So now what you're doing is you're starting a one skew, one product company with a shark on Shark Tank and retailers don't like one skew, one product companies. Some of them might be titillated a little bit by the fact that they're going to throw as seen on Shark Tank on the packaging. That's not nearly as attractive as 
going as a company that they already have 10 products in their store with. They know, they know well, they know the product line, they know it's solid. And if you license to that company that is in that retailer, they can take that product on. So don't think what I'm saying is when you license your product to a major consumer manufacturer or industrial for industrial product mm -hmm. manufacturer, that connection that that manufacturer has with the retailer is way stronger than any shark has. OK, on that show, show Shark Tank. So people don't realize these things. So licensing is way sexier. Get the money, get the workforce, get the distribution all in one place. You don't need to start a business. That is way sexier than Shark Tank. But does it make for good TV? I don't know. Stephen and I have been candidates for several TV shows. They Maybe they say they're going to do a pilot or they do a pilot. I think one actually got to a pilot stage. Um, and then this Hollywood. So they, you know, I don't even get excited when they call anymore. But I don't know if it'd make for good TV, to be quite honest. I think Shark Tank is good TV. It's very entertaining, but it's not good reality for you as an inventor. So I wasn't even planning on talking about that show Shark Tank, but explaining what licensing is, it got me going there. So let's see. Um, I think I'm going to have to start to get glasses here because my eyes, sometimes when I get tired, I get a little bit more blurry. Um, maybe it's because the light's coming in the window. Um, hi, uh, this is from Fred. Hi, Andrew. I have two to three mid-larger companies mention that they take submissions, but only by sending marketing material through customer service and they forward to the correct department. I'm a little worried about customer service reps stealing my idea. Nah, you really shouldn't be. What what I I think that's very odd. Um, customer service, like Customer service are the people that like take care of customers with problems with their products. You're doing something wrong, Fred. When our students call companies um, and even people outside of InventRight fans that call companies, they don't say to send it to customer service. I think you're calling a major 800 number and you're getting people that are saying that. No, that's not where you should go. Do I think customer service or anybody there would ever steal your idea? Not in a million years. Um, at InventRight, we've had students in 65 countries, um, and we've been doing this for almost 22 years now. We've never had one of our students get knocked off by a company they've shown to. Um, it'll happen one day, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, is some customer service rep with that kind of job, that kind of day-to-day uh, -day grind job, would they know what to do with it? No. Um, so I wouldn't even remotely worry about that. But you shouldn't be sending to the customer service department. You want to send to the marketing manager, um, one of the marketing managers. And you can go on LinkedIn. You can find marketing managers for these companies. So, Fred, you're you're saying something wrong that is leading people to tell you to send it to customer service. So don't do it. Are they going to rip you off? Hell no. <laughs> Some customers. Sometimes um, people are like worried. Like, well, I've sent it to this graphic designer to do my sell sheet or marketing piece. I'm worried they're going to steal it. I'm like, well, first off, if you send a marketing piece to a graphic designer, the information, um, somebody that's trying to just get by being a graphic designer wouldn't know what to do with your product to steal it anyway. Um, and same with customer service reps. So, but Fred, do not send it to customer service. You're doing something wrong. Reach out, figure out who the marketing managers are on LinkedIn, reach out to them. Okay. Uh, uh, don't have the name of this person, perspective, perspective X. Uh, how can I decide? Type in your first name if you can. Um, how can I decide if my idea is similar to a new friendly fidget toy is novel enough to proceed with if I can't find a patent on existing product? I'm decent at patent searching ex invent right student. Oh, okay, cool. Um, that was actually, geez, my eyes are getting randy. Um, so how can I decide if my idea is similar to a new friendly fidget toy is novel enough to proceed with? Okay, so it's pretty much a patent question. So, um, you know, it's not, I mean, you always want, Randy, you know this, being a former event right student, um, you always look at the marketplace first. When you come up with an idea, you never look at patents. Wouldn't spend two seconds on it at the beginning. At the beginning, I'm not saying not at all. 
you look at the marketplace, you go to Google Images, look at all the products, you see how your product fits in and you have the right attitude. So what's the wrong attitude? Oh, that one sucks. Oh, that's no good. That's not good there. Wrong attitude. Wrong attitude. Don't do that. Okay. Look at them all. Oh, okay. There's five over here. They do this and they're at this price point has this feature. And there's the ones over here that do this and acknowledge these other products and what their benefits are, whether it's cheap or super fancy or um, has this feature or that feature and, and soak it all in. Okay. And then figure out what your product fits in. And you might need to tweak it. You might thought it was perfect just the way it is. And you realize, you know, given these other products, I need to make a change or I don't. So that is what you do first. And Randy, if you were a former event rights student, you know that. Okay. Um, but what you're saying is, how do I, from a patent perspective, figure out if it's different enough than another patent? I can't answer that. People ask that question all the time. It depends on what are their claims and what are you trying to claim? Like I have this one student that I'm not giving anything away here, had something to do with baseball and hanging something on a fence. And um, and he was all concerned because this he found a patent and the picture looks similar. But then when the coach made him read through the claims, he realized like literally the only thing that was protecting is the hook mechanism, the way it was hanging on the fence. And he's like, well, that's not a problem. I'm like, well, then that patent's not a problem. So, Randy, what you have to do is you have to take a look at what they have claimed. Now, here I'm going to give you an extra tip here. Sometimes people search patents. And they don't realize the patent's not issued. So they read through the claims like, oh, my God, they got all this protection. But it's not issued. If you look at it in detail, you'll see it's not issued. So what happens is when you file a full utility patent, 18 months after it's been filed, it takes them longer than that usually to get to you, to do the office actions, to figure out, which is an argument between your patent attorney and the patent office and the patent examiner. That's the way I like to describe in layman's terms, office actions. They're going to argue about what claims you get, what you get to have protection on. And so after 18 months, if it hasn't, if the patent hasn't been examined yet, which quite often it isn't, it takes like a year to three and a half years to get examined, which the whole time it's pending. After 18 months, it goes public. So people will search the patent database, whether it's Google patents or the patent office database. Um, and they'll see something and they'll go, oh, I'm freaking out. Oh, my God, look at that protection. But then you look at it. I'm like, that's not issued. That's what they're trying to get. But um, nobody gets everything they're trying to get. So first, and this is just an extra tip. It doesn't really, it's not really directed specifically at you, Randy, but it's, it's, it's something you should know. Make sure it's issued or if it's pending. If it's pending, it's just their dream list of all the protection they'll get. And they won't get anything near that usually. OK, but it's uncertain. But if it's issued, then you know what they've got protection on. And it's kind of confusing. So hopefully a well-written patent, you should be able to understand the claims. But sometimes attorneys, I think they write them in a confusing fashion because they're poor attorneys or because they want to make it look fancy for the inventor. But a good good claims are, are going to be written very clear and concise. And any layman should be able to read them. But most of them aren't. A lot of them aren't. Um, so let's say it's two or three sentences. So you read each claim, like claim number one, and you read it. And you're like, I don't know what they're protecting. And you read it You read it again and again. You read it like six times, like you have obsessive compulsive disorder. And most of the time, I find when I do that, like on the fourth or fifth time or sixth time, I'm like, oh, okay, they're only protecting that hook or in this claim. They're only protecting this. And then you just go, well, is that a problem for me? Yes or no? And most of the time, it's no. That claim is not a problem for me. Next one, next one, next one. So you have to look at the other uh, prior art, uh, Randy, at, which is prior patents. Prior art is actually anything that's been ever published or in the marketplace or any patents too. It's not just patents. Um, because if something has been in the marketplace for more than a year and nobody got a patent on it, that is public domain. Anybody can do it. Now, you could still get a patent on an improvement to it. So when you're really doing a thorough search, you're not just looking at patents, but you're looking at what's in the marketplace. And so let's say you see uh, five companies or 10 companies doing something similar. They're like, well, probably nobody has a patent on that because everybody's doing that now. But one company, let's say five companies are doing this kind of um, 
kitchen pancake spatula, okay? But you notice one has a little improvement. Well, if you notice a ton of companies are doing it, I'm not saying this is a rule and nothing that I share tonight is legal advice. So consult the services of an attorney. If you want legal advice, nothing is legal advice. It's just an example. Um, if you see five companies making a pancake spatula, all with the same feature, there's probably no protection on that. But you see one has a little additional thing. And that just that one has that little additional thing. Well, they could get a patent on that and then prevent other people from doing that little additional thing. So, um, Randy, my best uh, answer is I can't answer it because I would have to look at your, your fidget toy. So you have to read the claims for these other fidget toys and see if you have a point of difference. And But in the end, especially with something like that, it's really not that important with that type of product. Um, our students license stuff all the time, having filed a $75 provisional. Sometimes the company, they want the window dressing of a patent, and then they give the inventors, which, upon the inventor's request, an advance to pay for the patent, which can be advanced on royalties. So it's it's no money out of the inventor's pocket to pay for the patent. But the company's like, oh, okay, you're going to use it to pay for a patent, so it's going to protect us and you. And they tend to be more agreeable with that. Okay? So... Um, yeah, you got to look at the claims. Um, let's see. Okay, Fred was expanding on his thing earlier. I didn't see that. What should I do? I tried a thousand times to reach out to others. Is it better to just send through customer service or find an email of contact and send unsolicited direct? Well, first of all, you never send any marketing materials unsolicited. When you send unsolicited, you ask permission to send it. So Fred, you're just not doing it right, man. You need to, you need to get on to um, LinkedIn and start reaching out to marketing managers. And there's a particular way to do that, which I would be very lengthy to go into now. But, um, and you need to start doing that. No, customer service is a black hole, man. Um, again, you're, you're doing something wrong there. Um, Jay said, I have a patent for an iPad or tablet. Is an audio enhancing apparatus for electronic media? It's, it's an audio enhancing apparatus for electronic media devices. Okay. I am stuck. Not sure what to do next. Need your help to move forward. How can I get into your classes? So just, uh, Jay, just go to inventright.com and click on the book appointment with us, the contact us page, and you'll see a calendar there and you can book an appointment with an advisor and they'll explain how to get set up with a coach and get some help. Um, because I think you're going to need it because electronic devices are a little harder, but if it's fairly simple and you're adding it on, um, I, I think with something like that, an add-on would be better than trying to tell Apple or Samsung or somebody that makes tablets to change the whole tablet. I don't know what your product is. But if it's an aftermarket thing, something you can add to enhance it, you're going to have a lot more potential licensees that way. So let's see. Jeff said, hi, Andrew. My newest idea involves a system of use uniquely combining several existing devices. Is that something I should get a PPA and eventually utility patent for? Um, well, I would only get a utility patent if you license it. As you know, Jeff, our, you might not know that our approach is to always file a PPA. We provide our students with some software called Smart IP. There's no need to pay an attorney to do that. And then you see if there's interest. And if there is, get them to pay for the patent. But they don't file the patent. They give you the money to pay for the patent. And if they want to be difficult about that, well, you can get just a little advance, some upfront money, and then you use that to pay for the patent one way or another. So you know, work both ways. Sometimes they don't want to pay for the patent, but they'll agree to pay upfront money. Then you take that money and you put it towards the patent that they feel is important. If they feel it's important, a lot of times our students, the company doesn't care. They're like, well, you can file one if you want, but yeah, we'll pay you royalties regardless. People are shocked by that, but it happens all the time for our students because we tell them it's possible. Um, and it is. Um, so you're combining several existing devices. I can't, you're, what you're asking, Jeff, is you say you've got something that is a system of use and you're combining several devices and does the product make sense to file a patent for? No, what the question is, is does it make sense to work on and try to license? So I can't possibly answer that. I don't have the information. Um, 
So if it provides a benefit over and above other things and it could be done at a reasonable price and it's manufacturable and manufacturable a reasonable price and has clear benefits and you've really studied all the products in that space and don't ever say there's nothing like it. There's always 1000% times something like it in some way, shape or form. And you just need to figure out how that fits in with all the other products in that space. Then it makes sense to file a $75 provisional and go for it. Um, but I can't tell you if it's licensable without knowing what the product is. Um, uh, Fez says, what is your take on aftermarket products for car manufacturers? I just got a note from Mr. Portney today stating it doesn't fit with their investment criteria. Is it difficult? No, I freaking love um, automotive aftermarket. So way, way better than trying to license to a major automotive company. You might as well shoot yourself in the head right now if you try to license to like a Ford or Volkswagen or General Motors or Mercedes or BMW. It's next to impossible. We helped one of our students do this massive deal. And because of the NDA signed, we couldn't even, he couldn't even do a testimonial. Suck. But that was few and far between. This guy had eight patents. He was a genius. And we were able to help him close a deal with a major automotive manufacturer. But I always, when I see an automotive product, I always say, how can we make this aftermarket? Because when you talk about automotive aftermarket, something that somebody would buy and add to their car, market's huge, tons of potential licensees. They're very open. I absolutely love it, Fez. It's a great, great category. Stick with that. Um, you know, Mark's great. Mark Portney came, comes on the show, does shows with Steven once in a while. He's just one person. So when we teach our students to reach out to license, they reach out to 20 or 30 or 50 or 80 companies, most commonly 20 or 30. And hey, if your product only has like eight or 12, that's fine. But you got to kind of ask yourself, why am I working on this product? There's only two or three potential licensees. Now, most inventors think they only have two or three. And I go, why? What? No, you got like 30 here. And they just don't realize it. And the coach helps them find those additional ones. But Fez, automotive aftermarket, great, fantastic category. Go for it. Um, uh, uh, Sam said, ever had an event rights student search USPTO database for inactive patents in their sector for a re regard for a RE license agreement from original inventor. Um, well, I don't know you mean inactive patents, but you mean like a patent that was issued and they're just not doing anything with it. Um, yeah, you can do that. Uh, it adds uh, complications to it. It's better. And, you know, I know you don't freak out when I say this. It's better if you can work around it. So um, a lot of patents are garbage, just absolute garbage. So you think like, oh, I got a patent, so I'm protected. No, it's like what you may have gotten protected for could be very weak and it's very easy to get around. And not all patent attorneys are cool, so they'll get you whatever they can. And the inventor is like, I'm so happy you got a patent. It's like you look at the claims, it's like, wow, that protects all of nothing. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you find uh, you're trying to work on a product, Sam, and you find an inventor with an inactive patent, and this is what I see sometimes. And you're like, oh, I'm worried this is going to conflict with what I'm doing. Really read through it and go, does it really? And if it doesn't, there's no need to work with that inventor to share in royalties. But I've had a few students where that inventor's patent was a problem. And inventors, and if you approach inventors that have filed a patent, been sitting around for two, three, five, ten years, the longer it's been sitting around, the better it is. But they fall into two categories. They're so thankful that somebody called them because they thought they could just file a patent and somebody would just say, I want to license your patent one day. And that's just ridiculous. You know, and so when somebody actually calls, they're so excited. You're like, I'm an inventor. I did something similar. Hey, if I license this, um, I think your intellectual property, your patent might, you know, there might be some overlap there. I want to pay you you know, 10% or 30% of whatever I can get. Are you agreeable to that? And so they're, oh, yes, that would be great. That would be great. That's one type. And the other type is like, yeah, I want you to give me a half a million dollars. And it's like, you know, whatever. Uh, and you tell them to take a, take a flying leap or you don't. You just say, thank you very much. Good luck. Um, 
Now, so I don't know if that was your question, Sam, but it, I think what your question might be is to troll for inactive patents. Ah, that's a waste of time, man. Like, I just, you'd be better off just coming up with good ideas yourself. Like, because remember I said before that a lot of patents are weak to junk and absolute garbage. So why do you want to troll, which is incredibly painful. I can just imagine how painful it is to look through that many patents. To look for patents nobody is using. And the question is, is that even a good product? Then you have to figure out and do all your research to figure out if that product even makes sense. I think that's a giant waste of time. Um, so I expanded on your question and said, hey, sometimes you'll find an inventor that has a patent that was done well and that might cause you a problem. So before you start reaching out to companies, you do a deal with them and you get them to sign something that says, hey, if I license this, I'll give you half my royalties or 20% of my royalties. Maybe their patent doesn't provide as much value. But a lot of patents are junk. So why would you do that? If their patent's junk, why not just go right around it? So now people freak out and go, well, Andrew, when I file a provisional, why wouldn't it be junk? Well, if you think about all the variations, workarounds, improvements, and you include them in your provisional, you will not file one of those junk patents or provisional patents. You'll do a good job, but most inventors never do that. They go, this is my idea. This is my idea. This is my idea. And they give it to the attorney. And the attorney goes, okay, I will patent your idea, whether it's a provisional or a patent. And the inventor didn't say, this is my idea. Here's my widget. And here's all the variations. I want you to protect those too. Okay, that's the inventor's fault if they didn't do that. But if the attorney doesn't say, well, you know, have you done, studied all the different variations? What are the variations of that? If the patent attorney doesn't say that to the inventor, straight up, that's a bad patent attorney. Now, so bad inventor, bad patent attorney, or both, that's why you have junk patents. Now, if you give your patent attorney good information, go, here's my widget, and all the variations, the other ways it could be done, all that. You try to get all that and throw that in the patent, whether you're filing a provisional for 75 bucks or filing a full utility, then you have something strong. So when I say these patents are junk, does that mean yours has to be? Absolutely not. You know, so hopefully that was helpful, Sam. Um, okay, William says, hi, Andrew. I have a question about when I sent an email to a licensee company and they replied back with an email to contact chief chief of chief of who takes in invention chief of who you guys you right <laughs> please be more careful about what you write what should i include in the first message please help me out with this today i just received my first email to response to the chief chief what's a chief i am excited about Excited, but stuck in the middle of sending an email. Um, I don't know what to say. I don't know what a chief is, William. Um, so it sounds like that you're saying that they put you in touch with the person that takes the invention. So send him your sell sheet or send him your short 30, second, 30 60 second video. And um, I don't know if you have a good one. I find that most inventors that aren't invent right students, their presentations are not so good. Um, they need to understand what your product is in six to 10 seconds. They need to look at it and go, if my customers saw this, they would want to buy it. Now, they may be interested in it or not, but you need to instantly understand what your product is. Okay. If you have a good enough sell sheet or video, go ahead and send it in. If you don't, you need to make, you need to wait, say, I'm still working on a few things. I'm tweaking things in. I'll get it back to you. You got their email address. Don't be in a big rush, but make sure whatever you send them, whatever marketing piece, so they can understand it in six to 10 seconds, okay? So, and and be, uh, I know it's just a chat, but be very articulate in what you write. If that's not your core competency, no problem. Have somebody that's really great about checking grammar and and writing things properly to um, to check your, your English and your writing, that's fine. You know, no worries. I, we have a lot of students like that live in other uh, countries and their English is not good at all because second language and they're fine. They just have somebody that speaks English as a first language proofread it. And I'm not saying English in your first language, William. I'm just saying um, anybody can do this. Just get some help. So make sure have, you know, and that goes for any marketing piece that goes for any email you send. Look very professional. 
Um, now, I think people are very understanding when English is your first language and you get interest from a company and you got to talk to them on the phone. I think that's fine. I've had people that really, really poor English, but they had decent communication skills. I'm really impressed at people that speak multiple languages. Um, and and they were able to do just fine. So don't worry if English isn't your first language or, or if you have dyslexia or if you're just not uh, good at writing, just have somebody proofread your stuff. And if you're going to do phone calls, make sure somebody preps you before those phone calls on what to say and when you're in a licensing deal. So anybody can do this, guys. Anybody can do this. Um, okay. Tit. Tanisha, can I manufacture and license at the same time? Yes, you can. So we have a lot of students that have been venturing their product. They're already selling their product, Tanisha. So I'll answer this in a couple ways to address what might be your question and anybody else's question. So we have a lot of people that have been venturing, trying to sell their product themselves. Um, Some like failing miserably. And they're like, Andrew, I got to license this thing. I know a big company can do well at this, but I just didn't want to run my own business. That's the only direction I thought I could go. And I'm just struggling. I'm losing money. I've spent $50,000, $200,000. Or, hey, I'm just making minimum wage. Um, or I have people that are moderately successful. I'm doing okay, but it's like, you know, I make like a couple thousand dollars a month. But, man, it's very time consuming. I know a big company could do a bit better. Or I have people that are kicking ass selling it themselves. And they're like, I'm tired of this. I'm drained. I don't want to run a business. I know a big company can do better. So all those um, types struggling, super in debt, doing okay, doing great. And you've been selling the product yourself. Can you now continue to sell it and in tandem work on licensing? Absolutely. So, but I don't know if Tanisha, if that's your question, if you're saying, can I do a licensing deal and keep manu- and, and manufacture it myself as well, even though I'm not now? doesn't really make a lot of sense most of the time. So when you license to a company, and let's say they're in like Walmart and Home Depot, okay? And you're like, well, I want to keep selling this myself, and, and I'm going to sell in Walmart too. It makes no friggin' sense. So you're not going to compete with the same company you license to in the same stores. Now, if you want to sell it in a different country or different distribution channel or do super cheapy, cheapy version and they want to do a higher end version, as long as you're not stepping on their toes, yes, you can manufacture at the same time. But if you're not manufacturing it now or even if you're manufacturing it now, I wouldn't make it when you get interest from a company the first thing you talk about. When you get interest from a company, I would move the deal forward. And then if you still want to sell it over here in these distribution channels, maybe the fifth, sixth call you do with them, then you follow up because you don't want them to think it's your baby. You want them to go, well, I thought you want to license this and now it's ours and we can keep it as long as we're paying you royalties. But if we don't, we're going to give it back to you. So you never really sell your idea, you rent or you lease it. So yes, you can manufacture and license at the same time. If you're already doing it, you're already making money, keep manufacturing it and work on licensing it. But if you're not manufacturing it now and you tell the company, hey, I want to retain the rights to manufacture this so I can be your competitor, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you want to retain certain versions of it, certain territories that don't step on their toes, that's possible. But do not bring that up on the first call. That's not how to move a licensing deal forward. I think I answered all the variations of that, Tanisha. So hopefully that was good. Um, uh, NFT. I don't know what NFT is. Hey, Andrew, just wondering what your thoughts are on the newer NFT craze going on. Just Steve Fine, by the way. I don't know what NFT is, uh, Scuba, so why don't you type in it at the bottom? Um, I could look it up, but it's kind of hard to do that when I'm talking and on video at the same time. Uh, Let's see what the next question is. Uh, Richard, I have, uh, I'm from the UK and I have a company in the US. Um, so good for you, Richard, staying up, man. It must be about 1230 your time. It's very flattering. You stay up to listen to me. Um, I'm from the UK and have a company in the USA wanting to license my product to be made over there. I'm new to licensing and not sure what to look for regarding contracts, how to best set up the deal. So 
Yeah, Richard, we've had students in over 65 countries. And and I would say 90% of the time, those deals are with U.S. and Canadian companies. So we have students, U.S. students that have done deals with U.K. companies, but it's a lot less common. So I think it's very smart of you to work on licensing in the U.S. U.S. companies are more open to licensing than U.K. companies. There's still kind of an old school mentality in Europe and Australia um, about licensing. Can you license in Europe? Absolutely. Um, but it's just a little harder. So um, what I would do, Richard, I, was, I would go to inventright.com, click on the contact us page, talk to one of our advisors about how we could guide you through that deal. Um, going through your first licensing deal alone is uh, not advised. What I'll say is also a trap that you can fall into is do not think that a licensing attorney, which this is a weird thing to say, is the person to help you close the deal. They're absolutely not. Um, licensing attorneys, this is a cynical look, but they're trying to rack up billable hours. And so the more they nitpick the deal to death, which ends up pissing the company off, um, you know, they're, the more billable hours they get, and then you end up with a dead deal and then a bill from your licensing attorney. Also, there's earlier stage stuff. So this is the way I explain it. There's from getting interest where you are right now to a contract, then contract to close. Getting interest to a contract, way more important than the contract to close. Okay. So there's critical conversations. Attorneys do not know how to handle that. Attorneys are not business people. Most of them, some of them are. So I don't want to beat everybody up, but most attorneys um, are not business people. They don't know how to go back and forth. And some companies, especially if they don't do a lot of licensing, they don't have a formal process. So to make them go through your licensing attorney's process, that is messed up. Like if we, if every time one of our students got interest from a company, we said, oh, just go get a licensing attorney. They would kill 80% of the deals that our negotiation coach Paul helps them close. So we have a negotiation coach that's not an attorney. They're not abrasive. They're not fighting with the other company's attorney. And they're talking. First of all, there's there's manufacturing. There's talking about the product. There's all sorts of stuff to talk about to get to move things forward naturally to a contract. And a licensing attorney is not the person to do that. So but I'm, I'm not exaggerating. If every time one of our students got interest, we said, oh, go get a licensing attorney. They would kill 80 percent of the deals that our negotiation coach helps close because he approaches it from a very um, practical standpoint. Now, the way he does it, because we're guiding our students, he guides the inventor to guide the company. So they let their guard down. There's not, they don't got, well, here's my attorney. He's going to fight for me. Screw that. Um, they, they let their guard down. And I don't care if they have an attorney, you're not signing anything yet. So our negotiation coach is guiding the inventor to guide the company. And here's the other part of it. You as the inventor are guiding the company to move the deal forward way more, way more than they're going to guide you. You can't just go, well, they're going to tell me what to do. That will not produce a licensing. That's another reason. So the two biggest reasons why inventors fail. First of all, good on you and getting interest from a company. Most inventors, their marketing materials are so terrible or they're uh, approaching so few companies. That's what the reason why I don't get a deal on the table. Inventors don't fail because their ideas are terrible. They fail because their marketing materials suck and they're approaching like one or two companies, if that. Most of them, people file patents, they don't approach any companies. So how are you going to do a licensing deal? So, but the reasons why they fail is one, they think a licensing attorney is going to fight for them, that they're going to kill a deal for you. And um, two, they think the company is going to tell them what to do and they just like a deer caught in headlights, say, okay, I'll do whatever you want. Hell no. No, you're going to kind of half answer. You're going to guide them this direction, that direction. And, you know, and that's how it's done. And that's what our negotiation coach Paul teaches you to do. That's what professional inventors do. Okay. And licensing attorneys are not professional inventors. So uh, Richard, fantastic question. Good on you. Um, but talk to one of our advisors about how we can help guide you through that because you're at a critical stage. Okay. And good on you. Your marketing materials must have been decent because you got some interest. Sometimes I see people get interest anyway, but that's fantastic. And don't worry about being in the UK. It makes no difference. They do not care. 
American companies don't care if you're in the UK or the US. They just want good ideas. Do not feel insecure about that whatsoever. Um, uh, Jacob Sma Design. Jacob Sma Design. Um, how do I go about licensing a tabletop game idea that is designed around a specific proprietary character, Marvel? So that's going to be a little bit more difficult. Um, so way, if you were to license a tabletop game, right? So you could do a marketing piece and you could show a generic version. Let's say it's football, okay? And you show a generic version, then you show, or you can do it with the NFL licenses, right? And you could do that the same way here with your tabletop game. But you're limiting yourself, uh, Jacob, because when you say it has to be these Marvel characters, what you're going to do is you're going to approach some tabletop game companies. And if you approach it just, it's got to be these Marvel characters. They're like, well, we don't have, when you look at a company, sorry to get off track there. When you look at a company, they either do brand licensing or they don't. So when you look at a toy company and you look at all their products and they're all generic and they're all their brand and you're telling them you have to get Marvel on it, it's not what they do. Now, if you have a tabletop game company, this is where you're limiting yourself, and they have a Marvel license already for some uh, one of their other products, great. That would be who you're reaching out to. But to limit yourself to the Marvel character, you, you, when you see a company isn't doing any, it's called brand licensing. So companies make stuff, and then they reach out to Marvel, for example, and go, well, I want to put Iron Man on this. And they say yay or nay. Right. And so then they have to pay Iron Man and Marvel a royalty. Right. So if you have an invention, now they're paying a double royalty. So now they got to pay you for your tabletop game and Marvel and you'll sell more. And you should you should automatically accept a lower royalty because you're going to sell more because it has freaking Marvel on it. Right. Or, you know, um, uh, Iron Man, let's say. OK. So but when you limit yourself like that. So my question to you, Jacob, is. Can you do a, a marketing piece where it could be done generically or with characters so you can show them so that same cell sheet could service people that aren't doing Marvel? But to expect a company, when you look at their line, they're not doing any brand licensing. It's cute products, but they don't have Marvel. They don't have NFL. They don't have these licenses. Now you're saying you need to do something completely different than you've ever done before. And you need to try to get a license from Marvel. And they're like, we don't know how to do that. We don't do that. You know, or even... I mean, we don't want to do that. We don't want to pay those royalties. Maybe there's a reason why they haven't done it. So you're really limiting your list of potential licensees. So I would, I would say, please see if you can make it not specific to that character. Try both. Maybe you have a sell sheet separate for both. Maybe the same sell sheet showing the generic and the licensed version. Hey, does it have to, let's say it's Iron Man. Does it have to be Iron Man? Could it be Superman? Could it be a generic hero or something, you know, that would still sell. So, but, so that's an example of the company having to pay a double royalty to the brand and to the inventor for the invention. Um, let me take a sip of water here. Um, I don't know, raising standards. I don't know what you were referring to. Okay. Well, that's Fez with regards to his automotive aftermarket product. Um, uh, Ray, you, he wrote, of course, I, ha I think it is a great idea that will provide safety measures on the road, but I am lost and I don't know how to approach this. Yeah, well, Fez, if you have potential licensees, you know, you need to make a good marketing piece. You need to file a provisional and you need to reach out to those potential licensees that are making automotive aftermarket products that you think are a right match for your particular automotive aftermarket product. Um, I'm simplifying it there. I mean, there's a reason why people sign up with our coaching, get a coach to get coached all through all this. So I don't want to make it, you know, sound like there's nothing more. But until you can talk to somebody about the specifics of the project, the licensing expert, it's hard to completely answer your question. Um, Scott says, hi, Andrew, Scott Maley here. Is it 
wise to try to repurpose a product from one product category to another? And if so, how would you bridge the gap between the two companies? Well, I, so, so yeah, you can take something in one product category and bring it over, but I don't think you're bridging the gap. You're doing a different version for the different industry. And what you want to do is figure out what's different. So if you're bringing something over from um, gardening to the kitchen and you're like, oh, you know, this um, product, you know, is going to make it easier. It makes it does something in gardening, but it has a benefit to use in the kitchen as well. Then you go, what's my point of difference? You file a provisional on that point of difference and you market it differently. You don't try to get those two companies together. You know, you just now you can cite the fact that, hey, it's over here. And hey, they, they sell them for $19.95. So I know you can make it and you can make it at that price. But it's going to we're going to change it up just a little bit for this new purpose for the kitchen as opposed to the garden. So people do that all the time. But I don't think you're trying to bring companies together. And without that's another example, without looking at the specific uh, whatever I've seen that I've been doing this for 22 years when I've seen that I've talked to inventors where they have told me what the product is and I'm like, no, it's not making sense. You know, I just do this, just do the different version. You don't need to bring companies together to do this, but without looking at the specific product, I wouldn't know. Um, Fred says, what if a large chain retailer has house brands that they are, that are perfect for my product. You say not to go to retailers, but they, this seems like a missed avenue can does it work uh will they potentially license i i never said i never said that once um i never said that fred i never said don't go to retailers what i what i say most of the time is uh retailers do have house brands and that most of the time they're just generic and they're trying to reduce costs and cut out the middleman and have their own house brands so target walmart home depot they all have their own house brands and for the most part, a lot of those house brands, it is changing, are very generic. They have no interest in doing anything really innovative. Now, I have seen that change. There are some house brands where if you did something fairly different, they might be open to it. So in that case, Fred, absolutely, they're a potential licensee. Are they harder to license to than a manufacturer that sells at that retailer? Yes. So if uh, Walmart has a particular, what is mainstays is like a Walmart brand. And probably if you look at the mainstays brands, probably just generic stuff, you know? So, but if you look at a retailer's house brand and you don't always know which ones those are, you got to do some research to figure that out. Um, and they're doing somewhat innovative stuff and not just completely generic stuff. Then, yeah, I would say they're a fair game. And I say that all the time, Fred, I might not say that every time I, I just explain you're reaching out to the manufacturers that sell at the retailers, not the retailers themselves. But um, yeah, that's fair game, Fred. Absolutely. Um, definitely hard to license to. Very rare that I see an inventor able to close a deal with the house brand of a major retailer. They're just not that innovative. But there are exceptions, and that is changing. Um, Glenn said, hi, Andrew. Is it better to make or turn a company contact into a connection first in LinkedIn, or can one simply just send a company contact your pitch in a message? Glenn, it's always better. Just invite them to your network. Don't ask for anything. Don't send a special connection request. Our LinkedIn for licensing expert, Benjamin Harrison, um, what he teaches our students to do is just make the connection and do not send a special message or any request and wait at least three days before you make any request. And if you so make connections now, you may not reach out to them for three or four months. Just make the connection. So, um, uh, yeah, it's better. Do not. We specifically say do not ask them for anything when you're making the connection. That just doesn't work as well. I've talked to people that felt differently, but at InventRight, that's what we guide people to do. Um, uh, uh, Thoughtful Jones says, hi, Andrew, is it easy for a company to design around a product if the company has seen a sell sheet but not the PPA? Can a sell sheet disclose too much? Yeah, a lot of the time, you know, our students, again, anything that I share today is not legal advice. Consult the service of an attorney if you need legal advice. Um, but 
I can just give you a statistic. In 21 years, the students in 65 countries, I sound like a broken record, not one of our students have been knocked off. Now, our students, our InventRight students that are coached by us, are acting very professional. They say they're professional in what they say via email. They're professional in their presentations. They don't, they don't say wacky inventor stuff, and they're very professional. So I think the 3 or 4% of companies that might rip you off, um, when they see you're very professional, they don't want to mess with you. I think that's a form of protection. I think that's an equally great form of protection from a PPA. When an inventor has terrible marketing materials, but they maybe see through it and like your product, you're saying crazy stuff, like you want a quarter million up front, you can barely compose an email. Um, the, the fewer three or 4% of sleazy companies that might consider knocking you off, they might do it. This guy's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. And if it's a sleazy company, they might do that. But it hasn't happened to one of our students that I'm aware of in 21 years a company they presented to. So this thought, which is what Thoughtful James is um, saying, can I disclose too much in a sell sheet? No. Now, what you're selling in a sell sheet is the benefit. And a lot of products are pretty simple. You show the sell sheet and you get what the product is. And they have an idea of how it would be manufactured. And it is what it is. And you filed your provisional patent application. And it says patent vending on your sell sheet. If you're not comfortable with that, then don't do licensing but you have to get comfortable with that. Now you're also creating a paper trail on what you sent them and when. So you're, you know, you're the first true inventor to file. So if they filed something, you can prove they're not first true inventor to file. So, um, you know, it's just, you're just new to it. Thoughtful Jones, you know, I, it's a common question. I'm glad you asked it so I could address it. I'm sure a lot of other people out there are thinking the same thing. Um, now, if you have a product and you can sell the benefit of the product, the benefit, and there's like inner workings and stuff. Who cares? You would never pitch that in a marketing piece to a consumer anyway. You're not going to talk about the inner workings. So, you know, why would you disclose that? So in some cases, the product's complicated or it's not quite clear, but the benefits you can make clear and show the product and it's clear. And there are things that they don't know. And that's fine. That is an additional form of protection. But to think that you need to hold back on your marketing, what you're doing there, that's just, I'm not saying you're saying that, but that's kind of what you're suggesting. Um, that don't do that. So anything that would hold back from them understanding your product in six to 10 seconds, the benefits of the product, not every little side note about how it works or the inner workings, they don't need that. Um, I mean, sometimes leaving that out gives them a reason to call, call you back. Like, oh, this is interesting. How does that work? You know, but a lot of times it's just obvious. So do not hold back on your marketing materials to protect yourself. You're just screwing yourself is what you're doing. Um, if you do that. Um. <laughs> William William said, please read my message above about emailing. I have to respond tomorrow. Well, it, William, this isn't one-on-one -on -one coaching, but I will read your message. Um, you do. First of all, I'm glad you said that. You don't have to respond tomorrow. Um, you don't have to respond right away. So, I don't see your question, William. You said you talked about a whole bunch about the chief, the chief who takes inventions. Um, I'm excited, but stuck in the middle of sending an email. Well, I already addressed that, William. I said, send them your sell sheet or send them um, your video. And if you don't have either of those, send them an email saying, look, I'm working on some marketing materials. I'll have it to you when I'm ready. Okay. And if you're not certain your marketing materials are good enough, well, then you need to have somebody that you trust review them, somebody that's experienced, okay? Um, but thank you for putting that trust in me. But So that's my answer. I think I answered it before. Um, Sheila said, hi, I'm enjoying the info. Great. Thank you, Sheila. Um, Uh, perspectives X, uh, continuation from earlier. Thanks. My question was more, I couldn't find a patent. I'm worried. I, I, if I go ahead, then later I have patent issues. I can, okay. I can finally see their claims and it turns out I'm infringing. Um, I've never had it happen to one of our students that I'm aware of. That's a, that's a common concern, but if you really do a thorough patent search, and you don't feel like you're infringing on other people's patents, just move forward to licensing it. You know, a lot of the time when you're going to take a closer look, perspective, perspective X, 
<laughs> I forget what your original name was. Uh, I don't think you put it, but um, is when you get your license, get a licensing deal on the table, worry about it then. Okay. Now do a patent search, but don't sign a contract. If you're worried, there's other prior art, but you said you did a bunch of patent searching. So this worry that I think that I'm infringing when you've done a patent search and I think I'm still infringing on somebody else's is, is really not significant most of the time. It's like, I almost never, ever see it at InventRight. I've never had, this is what I can say. I've never had a student license a product that I'm aware of. And then they came back and some company, some inventor that filed a patent or company said, we filed a patent on this. You're infringing. I've never seen it in 21 years. Could it happen? Yes. That falls into one of the categories of it could happen, but it, it never happens. Or, you know, so now if you didn't do any patent searching and it was right there in front of your face, okay, but you said you'd search. So I wouldn't worry about that. I would see what kind of licensing deal you get on the table. Inventor's ability to get a licensing deal on the table and close a licensing deal is what you should be concerned about, not infringing on somebody else's stuff. Um, but do a patent search, you know, but if you did it and you're good, then work on licensing it, okay? Uh Mar, Mar says, uh, if they pay for the patent, whose name will be on the patent, the inventor or the company who puts up the money? So we always, always, always tell our students, you, you, never, you never let the company file a patent. I would say never, 99.5% of the time. You don't let the company file a patent. Um, you file a patent. So the, the patent is in your name and the licensing contract gives them the rights to rent or lease the patent or a lot of times we do licensing agreements where it's not dependent on the patent. They have to pay you regardless of any patents, which is always how we try to do it. You can't always get away with that. But so the ideal scenario, Mar, is you you let them know that you if, if patents are important to them, if it's not important to them, you might not even file one. You get them to sign something that they have to pay you regardless. What's important to them, hey, you know, why don't you give me, let's say you find a competent independent practitioner give me the $8,000 or I'll pay half, you pay half, or give it to me full, the whole full 8,000 as an advance on royalties. And I will use that to pay for the patent. And then you're going to file the patent with the patent attorney. It's always under your name. You don't let them file the patent. You don't assign it over to them. It's not their patent. It's not their product. It makes it so much easier to get it back. If they falter on the licensing agreement, you just got to send them an email saying you haven't complied with licensing agreement. You don't need to have them reassign it back to you. That's a nightmare. You don't want to deal with that. Um, so hopefully that was helpful. So we got about five minutes left. Um, uh, Diana, thanks for your time. Andrew, can you please explain what consumables are? Um, uh, consumables are things that um, are disposable. So like toilet paper, uh, tampons, Kleenex, um, food you know, things that you use once and you throw away. That's my definition of a consumable. Um, so yeah, hopefully that's helpful. Um, Jason said, is there any way I can purchase access to the database of companies in InventRight instead of purchasing the whole course? I, I, I don't know, there isn't, but you don't, that's not what you need, Jason. You're in the wrong mindset. Whenever I talk to people about our companies looking for ideas database, I desell it. I say, look, your coach is going to guide you to make the proper list of companies for your particular idea. We're not going to hand you a list. You, if you're working on a kitchen cutting board, the coach is going to guide you on how to make that list of potential licensees. Then we're going to show you how to make good marketing materials. Then we're going to show you how to use LinkedIn and use the phone to reach out and some other techniques to reach out. You do not need anybody to give you a list. So our company's looking for ideas is a fun supplement. It is not the main way any of our students make their list. And it actually takes more work than making your list from scratch. Because so let's say there's, let's say you're in kitchen, and there's like 400 companies in there. You need to look at 400 websites and identify which, you wouldn't blast, email blast all those people because that's amateur hour, you need to make sure I got a kitchen cutting board and there's like a company that sells kitchen products, but they're not right for a kitchen cutting board by looking at their product line. So 
by looking at the companies that are already in the retailers where you'll be, that's what you want to do, Jason. This perception that somebody's going to hand you this magical list. Invention promotion companies do this. Oh, we have the contacts. We'll do it all for you. You know, these invention companies that say they'll do it all for you and they ask you for 10 or 12 grand, you know, and it's just garbage. You know, first of all, I don't even think they have that. And, and it's not true. So, Jason, it wouldn't be getting you what you needed. What you need is to become empowered to make your list from scratch that's perfect for your particular product. And our coaches guide our students to do that. Okay. Now, that's fairly time consuming. I would say it can take anywhere from two to 10 hours to do. But it's, oh, my God, compared to running a business, that's no time at all. You got to invest that time. So invest that time. So no, we don't sell it separately. And that's one of the reasons we don't do that is because people misperceive that it's like this panacea, this beautiful, perfect thing. that's going to give them exactly what they need. I'll just find, I'll just contact those companies there, you know, and you're going to be missing a bunch of companies. So we tell our students, make your list from scratch. And if then you want to use our companies looking for ideas database as a supplement, see if you missed a few, fine. But that's amateur hour. You got to make your list from scratch. Um, Carlos said, hi, Andrew, if you have a PPA on my product, is it still wise to have a company fill out an NDA before sending my sell sheet? I can't provide legal advice, Carlos, but I can tell you our students wouldn't do that. Um, you're going to feel like you're beating your head up against a brick wall if you ask every company to sign your NDA. Attorneys will tell you to do that sometimes. It's not practical in the real world. You've got your PPA. You're creating a paper trail. Um, when you ask a company to sign your NDA, what you're saying is, I can't tell you what I'm going to send you, but whatever I send you, you have to agree to keep confidential. Wow, There's no company wants to sign that. It makes sense. Now, when our students are sending prototypes or sending more information or something, will companies sign the NDA then? Yeah, they will. But that's the two companies in 100 that month that they showed, two products in 100 that month they showed interest in. You know, and they got to know the inventor. They saw the product because they saw the sell sheet or they saw the video, and now they're willing to sign something. But... I can tell you from a practical, this is not legal advice, but from a practical standpoint, if you ask every company to sign your NDA, you will be beating your head into a brick wall and it will be bloodied and you'll have a concussion and you'll be pissed. And you go, this isn't working. It's like, my attorney told me to do this. And I'm like, well, how many products is your attorney licensed? Zero. Um, They don't, you know, so it's not, there's the practical world that inventors live in and well, that invent right students live in. A lot of inventors don't live in the practical world, but um, and then there's the world that attorneys live in, and so. But that's not legal advice. Seek the service of an attorney before you move forward with anything. Um, Annelton, hi Andrew. I pitched my idea to a company and I'm waiting for their response. How long should I give them before I start emailing them? I would give them at least two or three weeks. And so, but here's the problem. You, you sent it to, for their response, to a company. That's the problem. You should never show it to a company. You should be showing Anilton to 20 or 30 companies. So I'm not saying you feel this way, but a lot of inventors feel anxiety because you send it to a company and just sit there thinking about it. It'll drive you nuts. But if you keep yourself busy trying to show it to 20 or 30 other companies and then you roll around, it's going to be two or three weeks before two or three weeks before you roll around the first one you sent to anyway, and then you follow up with them, right? Um, so that's the way to deal with that. So don't send do, don't send anything to a company. It's just a waste of time. You got to play the numbers game. You want to send to 20 or 30. In some rare instances, are there only like eight or 12? Yeah, and that's okay. Are there quite often like 50? Yeah, that too. Absolutely. Um Okay, so we've hit the hour. Um, If you want to type in anything, uh, uh, Robert, about any thank yous or what have you. Oh, before we go, I want to say, please help us out. Um, I think we just hit 50,000 subscribers. Please subscribe if you're not already subscribed. If you're already subscribed, don't click on it again because then we'll unsubscribe you. But please click subscribe. That's how you could help me. I spent a whole hour for free to answer your questions. If you want to do me a favor back, subscribe watch more videos, click thumbs up on videos if you like them. If you don't like them, don't click thumbs up and and interact. And that's how you can help. Um, If you're interested in getting coaching, go to inventright.com. You can find out more on the coaching menu there and you can book an appointment with an advisor to talk more as well. 
Um, Robert says, thank you for your time, Andrew. Always insightful. You're welcome, Robert. Um, Lana, thank you for your time and wisdom. Much appreciated. Thank you, Lana. Margie, thank you, Andrew. Always appreciated your time and advice. Uh, Jeff says, thank you. So I, I know I talk really fast. I like, I personally, I like to just suck in the information. I think you guys are probably a lot like me there too. Um, so I talk fast, but I like to cover a lot. Like I don't want to be like super slow and I answered like four questions. I mean, I don't know what I did. I probably did, I'm going to guess 20, maybe 20 questions or something. I'm not sure. But so hopefully you guys appreciate that. If you ever want to give me feedback on my style, I'm, I'm open to that. Um, if you think I should go slower or what have you. I did, just to let you know, thank you, Fred. Thank you, Clyde. Uh, thank you, Jeff. I did go pretty much in order. Um, so the people that got here earlier, if you didn't get, if you got here later, you asked a question, show up earlier. I'll answer your questions, you know, um, and, uh, and we'll go from there. All right, everybody. Take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you next time. See you guys. Bye.